Okay, if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Luke chapter 3. If you're new to church, then that's kind of one of the books about Jesus' life in the bit of the Bible that we call the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, then look over to the person on your left or right. If you don't have a Bible and you normally come to G2, you want to ask yourself, why don't I have a Bible today? And that's probably a good thing to ask. So Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22 and onwards. I'll read this to us. We're going to read through to um, chapter 4, verse 13. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Marth, all the way through to verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And the devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not fight, strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So today here at G2, as you've seen on the screen or you went outside in the freezing cold, you've just had um, some baptism and some reaffirmations. And you're also in this year of invitation here at G2, which is really, really amazing. And so we're looking at a Bible passage today that speaks about both those things, baptism and invitation. Now let me tell you about the most extraordinary invitation that I ever received. So when I was studying at Cambridge University um, to be a vicar, I one day in the post got an invite from Buckingham Palace via the Vice Chancellor of the University. Just after William and Kate had got married, they were doing their first official visit to Cambridge after becoming Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. And I got invited to go and have drinks with them, which was a real, real privilege. Um, and it, it, was a, it was a wonderful occasion. And the close, I, I, of course, accepted this invitation. Well, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This probably isn't going to happen again. And as the day got closer and closer and closer, they must have invited me about two or three months before the event happened. The excitement was kind of growing until the day actually arrived when I was going to go and meet Will and, Will and Kate, as I now know them, um, <laughs> for drinks. And the, the day arrived, and I can remember putting on my um, academic, Cambr- you know, we had to wear these academic Cambridge gowns. And we had, I had to wander from mine and Ellie's house all the way to, um, well, actually, it was only about a 10-minute walk to the city centre, to the to Senate House, where we were going to have this drinks reception. 
And as we got closer and closer, as you can imagine, security was everywhere that day. There was police all over the place and um, unmarked police and all of that kind of thing. And I had to go through three security checkpoints just from our house, which was a 10-minute walk from the Senate House to, to, to Senate House. Went through three different checkpoints. And the thing that got me through that day, through each different checkpoint, wasn't the fact that I was Ben Doolin. wasn't the fact that I deserved to be there, but it was the fact that on that day, I could say that today I'm with Will and Kate. It was because I had this amazing invitation from them to go and meet them. It had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with who had invited me. Coincidentally, I went home later that evening after spending a couple of hours with them. There's about 100 of us um, in this room. And I said to Ellie when I got home, Kate is definitely pregnant. You know, she's got some, she had some kind of glow about her. I just, I just knew. And four weeks later, they, and they announced early, if you remember, um, four weeks later, they announced that she was ex they were expecting their first child, Prince George. So uh, my prophetic gift was born that day. And if any of you want a word over your life, come and see me at the end. I'll happily give you one. Today we're reminded that we're, all of us in this room, whether we're aware of this or not, whether we've heard this or not, all of us have been given an even greater invitation. And that was symbolized in the baptisms that we have just seen. And it's an invitation to relationship with the creator of the universe, with Jesus Christ. And for those of us that have accepted this invitation, the thing that kind of gets us ultimately to where we're going and even into relationship with God isn't the fact that we are who we are, but it's everything to do with who's invited us. It's everything to do with Jesus. And if you're not yet following Jesus and you haven't yet responded to this invitation or you're hearing about it for the first time, let me say that there's nothing that you can do, you can do to deserve it. And we'll see that as we go through this passage. All you need to do is accept that Jesus loves you just for who you are. And you can be in relationship with the king of the universe. So let's have a look at these verses together. If this is your first time working through a Bible passage, then um, just bear with me. But I promise you it's the best book in the world. So we're going to look at um, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22 together, and the following verses. Now, one of the things that all of the verses that we're looking at today have in common is this whole thing of identity. And here's a dictionary definition of identity. It's this, the condition of being oneself and not another. Now, I think that today, in the kind of society that we are living in, this is the kind of message that all of us need to hear that we can be totally free to be who God has created us to be. And we don't have to pretend that we are anybody else. Lots of people I pray with, lots of people I talk to in my job as a vicar, often say to me, I wish that I was just a little bit more like him. Or I wish that I had a little bit more of her gifting. Or I wish I looked a little bit more like him. God says to each and every one of us today that we can be who he has created us to be and we don't have to pretend or worry about being anybody else. Now we see this in Jesus's baptism. So um, for those of you that have heard a little bit about Jesus, um, then you'll know that Jesus, the Bible claims that Jesus did some amazing things. The Bible talks about this guy Jesus walking on water. The Bible talks about um, this person Jesus raising people from the dead healing the sick, um, casting out demons, multiplying just a handful of, handful of loaves and some fish and feeding 5,000 people. Yet the amazing thing about this passage is that before Jesus did any of that, this is right at the start of Jesus' um, like public ministry, if you like, before Jesus did anything, God the Father spoke this over him. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. 
Now, let me speak to those of you who have been baptized in the room, particularly those of you that just got dunked. What is true for Jesus in his baptism becomes true for us in ours. So for those of us that are following Jesus, we, we should hear this spoken over us all of the time. Before you do any amount of work, before you lift a finger um, first thing in the morning, before you do anything, God speaks over you. You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, as I say, in the kind of society that we're living in today, this is a message that we really need to hear. So many of us base our identity on our performance. So many of us base our identity on the way that we think other people view us. And this isn't helped by some of the things that we're becoming addicted to in our society. I think social media is, is causing comparison on a whole new level. Most of us spend most of our days comparing ourselves to other people based on what they posted on Instagram, the, the dinner that they cooked. And you look down at your jacket potato and beans and feel so inadequate. Do you know that the average young adult and teenager, this is um, an article that I read in a newspaper just last week, the average young adult and teenager touches their smartphone now over 5,000 times a day. 5,000 different hits of the screen. People who are married, this was in Tesco, the Tesco magazine a few months ago, so it must be true. Um, people who are married now spend on average more time on their phone every day than they do spend time with their spouse. If you're married, you may want to think about that for a little bit. Um, one newspaper article, I think the same one that said that we touch our phone 5,000 times a day, said that half of people who own a smartphone in the UK wake up between midnight and 5 a.m. to check their social media statuses or to check for a notification on their phone. Um, here's a letter that I saw someone wrote into a newspaper the other day, and it was simply titled Facebook. I'm trying to make friends outside of Facebook while applying the same principles. Therefore, every day I walk down the street and tell passers-by what I have eaten, how I feel at the moment, what, have, what I have done on the night before, and what I will do later and with whom. I give them pictures of my family, my dog, of me gardening, taking things apart in the garage, watering the lawn, standing in front of landmarks, driving around town, having lunch and doing what anybody and everybody does every day. I also listen to their conversations, give them the thumbs up and tell them that I like them. And it works just like Facebook. I already have four people following me, two police officers, a private investigator, and a psychiatrist. <laughs> now, <we're laughs> that, that's kind of funny, but the sad reality in all of this is that we're, particularly those of us who would consider ourselves millennials or young adults or whatever, we're getting addicted to this stuff. And it's actually having a profound impact on the way that we view ourselves. And you know, social media platforms now build into their algorithms or whatever techie words are for these things, um, into their programming, ways to make you addicted to social media. So when I send a tweet now, you can hit a little button and it will tell you how many people have seen it, how many people have had an impression of it, how many people have interacted with a link. If you're on um, time hop or something, it will give you a score for how many days you've checked the app in a row. The same with Snapchat, all of these different things, they're built to make you addicted. Some of us can't even go out for a meal without checking our phone. Some of us can't even go to the toilet without scrolling through our news feeds, and you know who you are. Millennials, young adults, are the most connected generation in history. They reckon now that from any other person in the world, out of all seven billion of us, we're only five people away from knowing everybody on the planet because of the rise of 
social media. And yet, at the very same time, despite being the most connected generation in history, we're also the most lonely. This was an article on the BBC um, website last week that said that millennials are the loneliest generation in history. Because falling into the traps of all of these things um, slips, makes us slip into the thing of thinking that our identity is based on how we feel, on what we look like, on our performance. And I think that in the Bible, Jesus has something to say about that, particularly in this passage that we're looking at today. So let me just tell you how I think the world does like affirmation, how the world affirms people. So this is what's called the cycle of grief. Now, we particularly see this in our education systems and in work, like line management systems, all of these types of things. So you have to achieve something in order to get an identity. So, I don't know, you become particularly good at something and you get an identity for being good at it. But that, that then leads you to being driven at that thing. At some point, you then feel accepted. But, of course, you're a human being, so you fail. So you have to start all over again. You have to prove yourself in order to get an identity, which leads you to being driven, which then you fail, and so you have to start all over again. What we see in Jesus' baptism, and this is the invitation for all of us tonight, whether we would call ourselves Christian or not, is what we call the cycle of grace. For those of us that trust in Jesus... We know that we're accepted before we do anything. Regardless of our past, regardless of what we may or may not have done, Jesus accepts us before we do anything. And that sustains us, which gives us our identity. And we can achieve out of a place of Jesus earning our identity, not us having to earn it for ourselves. Tim Keller, who's a, um, one of the best-selling Christian theologians at the minute, he put it like this. Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? The atheist might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They're a good person and they hope eventually they will get a verdict that confirms that they are a good person. Performance leads to the verdict. For the Buddhist too, performance leads to the verdict. If you're a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means that every day you are in the courtroom Every day, you are on trial. And that is the problem. But Paul is saying that in Christianity, the verdict leads to the performance. I wonder if you're hearing this for the first time. This is such good news, isn't it? We don't have to do anything to earn our identity. We don't have to do anything to make God love us. We don't have to do any of that stuff. God loves us just because he loves us. Perhaps you've been coming to church for a while and you've fallen into the trap of thinking that you have to earn God's love. I can remember one of the saddest conversations I've ever had was with my grandfather who'd been going to church for 84 years. He'd been a church warden, he'd been on the PCC, he'd been a treasurer, he'd read the Bible most weeks in church and just before he died, he said to me and Ellie when we were at his house in Cambridge, he said to me just before going to bed one night, I'm really scared of dying. And I said, well, that's understandable. And he I said, Why? And he said, because I don't know if I've done enough to earn my place in heaven. Now, that's religion. We don't believe in religion. We believe in relationship. Jesus does everything for us. We don't have to earn our identity. It's not based on how many um, Instagram followers we have. It's just because God loves us. Now, the second thing we see in these verses is this whole thing of family. 
So family's supposed to be really important in terms of our understanding of, like, of our identity. And this is probably why identity nationally is in such a mess at the moment. So divorce rates are creeping up and up, increasingly, um, certainly students that I'm working with at, at the Belfry coming from what society would call broken families. And families are supposed to provide a secure, safe place for people to work out who and whose they are. And there's the language of family oozing out of these verses. So firstly, at Jesus' baptism, Christians believe, again, if you're not normally in church, we believe in a God who is one in three and three in one. It's called the Trinity. So we believe in one God, but three persons in that one Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at Jesus' baptism, you have God the Son, Jesus is God, the Son, coming to, the ba coming to baptism. The Father speaking over him, you are my Son whom I love, with, with you I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. Now, Jesus knew exactly who he was in his family. My prayer for each of us is that we would know exactly who we are in terms of the context of the family of God as well. And that's what's so wonderful about all of those, um, all of those, verse, all of those names that I was reading out. Luke, the author of this account of Jesus' life that we're looking at today, purposefully sets Jesus' baptism in the context of family. Because family's supposed to be where we work out who we are. Now, the good news, again, for those of you that have just been dunked, is that while our biological families are really important, and they really are very important, what's true for Christians is that when we get baptized, and we sung it in, in the song we sung earlier, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a, a child of God. Um, the family of God, the church, is even more important. It's this amazing family that you're building and growing here where you get to work out who and whose you are, where you can be honest and vulnerable with one another and not judge one another because of those things. The Archbishop of Canterbury just a few, um, two Easter's ago, I don't know if you remember this story, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the run-up to Easter two, two years ago found out that his the person who he thought was his biological father wasn't actually his biological father. And the tabloids had an absolute field day with this story. I don't know if you remember some of the headlines that, you know, some of them were saying the front news was the Archbishop of Canterbury isn't who he thought he was. And he was interviewed about this just before Easter Sunday. And um, he said this, that it doesn't really matter because um, this revelation has, of course, been a surprise. But in my life and in our marriage, Caroline and I have had far worse. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. At the very outset of my inauguration service three years ago, a young member of the Canterbury Cathedral Congregation said, we greet you in the name of Christ. Who are you and why do you request entry? To which I responded, I am Justin, a servant of Jesus Christ, and I come as one seeking the grace of God to travel with you in his, serv in his service together. What has changed? nothing. Now being able to say that comes from a security that can only come from being in relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, knowing that your identity isn't based on anything except what Jesus has done for you. That the creator of the universe loves you so much that he would come to the earth for you, live the life that you should have lived, died the death that you should have died so that you could be free. Now, he doesn't believe this just because he's an archbishop. I want to put it to each of us that we can all have this security in who we are. All of us can have that security that Justin Welby feels. 
And this is really, really important because, you know, often in society we're judged by who we are. We're judged by our job or we're judged by our success or our performance, as I've already said. What's more important to God is whose you are. It's who you're in relationship with. And ultimately, are you in relationship with Jesus Christ? For Christians, relationship always trumps function. So the fact that I'm married to Ellie is far more important than the fact that I'm a vicar. The fact that I'm a son or a godfather or a brother is far more important than anything that I may do. And ultimately, the most important thing is that I'm a friend of Jesus Christ. Now, the last thing I want us to look at is how we know that this um, stuff that I'm talking about is actually real. So for the last four minutes, I just want us to look at these last 13 verses, um, the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 4 together. So remember, Jesus has just been affirmed in his identity of being a son, the son of God. So he's come to be baptized and the son has spoken over him. Here is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And the very next thing that happens is that Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And the devil's strategy for undermining what's just happened to Jesus is for the devil to say this to him. If you are the son of God, then tell this stone to become bread. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from here. For those of you that have just been baptized, or for those of us that are following Jesus and know this to be true, I want to say to us that one of the main ways in which our identity as a child of God is undermined is by us thinking, if I really am loved by God, then why doesn't this happen? Or if I really am loved by God, then why don't I look more like that person that I follow on Instagram? If I really am loved by God, then why haven't I had that pay rise that I've been praying for for years and years and years? We're at, we see in this passage that we're attacked at the very heart of who we are. God wants us to doubt the identity, uh, the devil, sorry, wants us to doubt the identity that God, God doesn't want you to doubt it. Um, the devil wants you to doubt the identity that God has given you. Now, if you notice, the devil basically wants Jesus to make God prove, God the Father prove that he loves him. But if you know that you're loved, you don't have to ask for demonstrations of love. I don't have to walk, when I walk through the door every evening when I get home from the office, I don't have to say to Ellie, Ellie, I need you to prove to me that you love me now. Again, Tim Keller, who was the um, guy I quoted earlier, um, puts it like this, that Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. So how do we overcome these attacks that do come, either the self-inflicted ones by being addicted to social media or the, that nagging voice that we have at the back of our minds all of the time? Well, notice what Jesus does. Every time the devil says, if you really are the son of God, Jesus, then tell the stone to become bread. Jesus always responds by saying, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And this book that I've read from, um, this afternoon is our greatest weapon in terms of us remembering who we are. And this can be true if you're here today and you're not following Jesus. So when we hear that little voice, if you really are loved by God or loved by people, then why don't you look more like so-and-so? If you really are um, special, then why can't you get that thing that you want? We can say, but in this book, it is written that God loves me just because he loves me. 
when we think about that stuff that we do that we know we shouldn't, we can say it is written that nothing in all the creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. It is written that my Father in heaven loves me. It is written that my sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. What we see through all of these verses is this, that we belong to Jesus and nothing can change that. For those of you that have been baptized, this is basically your commission to, um, this is the kind of faith that you're to live out for the rest of your days. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then let me um, just say this to you, that today you were invited to the greatest relationship um, that, you would ever, that you could ever know. That the one who made the heavens and the earth invites you to be in relationship with him. And you don't have to earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. But God in Jesus is inviting you anyway. Saying yes to this invitation will be the best thing that you ever do. Don't just take my word for it. Ask the person who brought you today what, it, what, what it's like for them to be in relationship with Jesus. What does it look like for them to follow Jesus? Saying yes to him will be the best thing that you will ever do. I'm just going to end with a prayer. Um, this is going to be a prayer just for us to respond to what Jesus um, is saying to us through this book. We believe Jesus speaks to us through this. And I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. And if you prayed this prayer for the first time today, I just want you to tell the person that you came with that you prayed it. Um, or tell Adam or Hannah at the end, we'd love to hear from you. So let's just spend a moment praying. God, thank you that you invite me to relationship with you. I say sorry for all the wrong in my life. Come into my life now. Give me a fresh start. Amen.